So Aquinas' natural philosophy combines what might be called composition out of the co-principles of matter and form with a theory of composition out of the elements. And the challenge is to combine these two different kinds of theories into a coherent, unified account. Um, I'm going to focus on, on what we would now call the more chemical aspects of the Aristotelian Thomistic view of things, um, primarily from the historical standpoint of the 13th century. So I'll speak about the nature of an element, uh, the four-element theory, mixtures, virtual presence. I'm not going to talk about alchemy, although the Aristotelian Thomistic chemical tradition um, becomes interwoven with alchemy in the beginning of the 13th century, especially in the figure of St. Albert the Great. Now, what we might call the Aristotelian Thomistic tradition in chemistry um, is present within several different disciplines, and much of it was bound up with what we would now call uh, philosophy of chemistry. But I want to begin by locating it um, it, cosmologically. Um, in Aristotle's cosmology, the, Aris, the universe is finite and spherical, and it's divided into two very, very different regions, the inner and relatively small sublunar region below the moon, and the very much larger outer celestial region. And the celestial spheres were thought to be made of ether, um, sometimes called the fifth essence. And there's no chemistry in the celestial um, regions. Um, uh, there is, um, um, the celestial bodies are uh, a certain uh, fundamental drivers of chemistry, especially the sun, in the sublunar uh, realm. Now the sublunar region, uh, below here, is the realm of, of chemistry. Uh, Aristotle accepted the four-element theory of Empedocles and other pre-Socratics, although he understood them rather differently. So earth, air, fire, and water are the elements of all sublunar things. And it's about as much as I want to say cosmologically. There's a lot more we could go into. Now, an element... Uh, Aquinas describes an element following Aristotle as, quote, uh, that out of which a thing is primarily composed, which is imminent in the thing, and which is indivisible according to form. So the description has four parts. Um, first, an element is that out of which a thing is composed, which means that an element is a cause, and among the four causes, it's a specific kind of cause, namely a material cause. So an element has a kind of interesting dual role. It can exist in its own right as a kind of natural body, but it can also be a material or, uh, for other sorts of things. Uh, so in this respect, an element is like uh, marble in a statue or sodium in table salt, except that an element is primary, whereas um, marble and sodium are, are not. And this brings us to the second part of the definition. An element is a specific kind of material cause, namely a primary one. Um, however, as the fourth part of the definition makes it especially clear, primary with respect to element does not mean prime matter. Um, it means that the elements are or can be natural bodies that are not composed out of other uh, natural bodies. So you can't take them apart, as it were, and get another kind of, of body. Um, they themselves are the bodily materials out of which all non-elemental bodies are composed, 
and in this respect, they are first. So with respect to bodily composition, the composition of natural bodies begins with the elements if we're putting them together, um, or it ends with the elements if we are taking things apart into their most fundamental bodily uh, components. So clearly the chemical elements, as uh, known by modern chemistry, are, are not elements in this full and proper sense because they're made up of protons, electrons, and, and neutrons. So at best, uh, the modern chemical elements would be elements in a, a relative sense. Uh, the third part of the definition, that which is imminent in the thing, means that the element, an element or elements, remain in a natural body that they compose. Uh, so the elements are not passing or transient material in what comes to be, but they persist in that which they compose. So unlike food, which is broken down in eating and digestion, uh, the elements inhere in the body that is formed out of them. Um, so although the elements can be transformed into each other, they cannot be further broken down into further bodily um, matter because an element has no further bodily matter into which it could be further decomposed. So this part of the definition, uh, the persistence of the elements within the body, within a body, uh, gives rise to a very important problem concerning the way in which an element remains in the thing that it composes. Um, the theory of virtual presence, about which I'll speak later, addresses this problem. The fourth part of the definition of an element, that, that which is indivisible according to form, means that an element itself has its own form by which it's a natural body and that the element is not divisible into separate parts that have a different kind of form by which they would be a different kind of, of natural body. So a, an element may or may not be um, physically as opposed to mathematically divisible, but if, it is but if it is physically divisible, then an element would only be divisible into parts that were of the same kind as each other and of the same kind as the original whole. So an element is not divisible into parts which are themselves different in kind for the element. So on the ancient understanding, water, which was regarded as an element, would be divisible but only into parts that were also water. Um, further, dividing something into physical parts of the same kind, uh, as if by cutting with a knife or, or some sort of similar tool, doesn't itself imply that something is an element. Uh, Aquinas, following Aristotle, thought that various physical things, such as metals, wood, flesh, and bone, were homogeneous throughout so that cutting them up into qualitatively, uh, quant sorry, quantitatively smaller, smaller parts um, of the same, yielded things of the same kind. So indivisible according to form means that a natural body is not, uh, means that a natural body is not divisible by alteration in, so that a qualitative change would separate a natural body into two different kinds of parts each with its own specifying form. So for Aristotle and Aquinas, wood, flesh, bone, and metal are, div are divisible in this way. Um, they can be broken down into their elements, even though if you just cut them, you get things of the same kind. So water, as we now understand it, um, is divisible in this kind of qualitative way, and so it would not, on um, this under ancient understanding, be an element. 
Now, although an element cannot be divided or resolved according to form, nevertheless, in an analogous sense, an element does have a kind of composition. Like other bodies, it's composed out of prime matter and substantial form, but unlike other natural bodies, at the level of nature, it's composed only of prime matter and substantial form. Um, prime matter as such has no form and is not quantified, and so it's not only indivisible according to form, uh, but also is quantitatively uh, indivisible. So unlike an element which has a form and is a certain kind of natural body, prime matter is a principle, but not a natural body or even a kind of, of thing. Um, an element's material component is then without form, and the element's substantial form is proportion to this kind of form, to this formless matter at the lowest level of, of natural things. Now, with respect to divisibility, Aristotle and Aquinas thought that a body had a certain minimum quantity into which it could be divided. Um, their view was not an atomistic one, as in the case of Democritus or later crepuscularians like Newton. Um, it followed from a hylomorphic understanding of physical things. So the corporeal form of an element could not make the element exist below a certain, certain finite minimum, for the element of its very nature um, requires a certain minimum size in order to be. Um, this natural minimum was a formal requirement of the nature. So below that minimum, an element was physically indivisible, even though extended in three dimensions. Now this implies, since um, the elements themselves were not further divisible into other kinds of bodies. The corporeal matter had certain definite physical limits or minima into which it could be defined, divided. And Aquinas summarizes this position um, in um, distinguishing between mathematical and physical divisibilities. Quote, although a body considered mathematically uh, is divisible to infinity. The natural body is not divisible to infinity. For in a mathematical body, nothing but quantity is considered, and in this sense, there is nothing repugnant to division to infinity. But in a natural body, the form also is considered, which form requires a determinate quantity and also other accidents. Whence it is not possible for quantity to be found in the species of flesh, except as determined within some termini. End quote. Uh, the reference to natural bodies makes it clear that the elements and not just flesh have natural minima. Um, there is this, thus there's a sense in which there's the smallest quantity of form matter. However, although the elements have natural minima. Uh, we shouldn't think of these, um, uh, we shouldn't think of natural bodies as built out of these uh, natural minima. The elements are not uh, atomic for Aristotle and Aquinas. So though their physical divisibility has a limit, minima do not occur as natural units and uh, they're also changeable into other elements. An element is the simplest of natural bodies. Um, Aristotle and Aquinas following him regarded the elements as homeomerists, a technical term, which means that the element is completely uniform and lacking in diversity so that every part of the element, 
every quantitative part is the same as any other part and is the same as the whole. So any given magnitude of the element would be like any other magnitude and also like the whole. Now Aquinas' example uh, for this is the example of a letter that makes up words. Um, in the example, uh, we have to think of a letter with respect to sound um, as it's pronounced and not uh, as a letter written in, in script. Uh, so that the example is using a temporal division to illustrate a spatial one. Um, we may think of a speech that's divided into paragraphs and a paragraph that is divided into sentences and a sentence that's divided into words, and a word that's divided into syllables, and a syllable that's further divided into letters, either vowels or consonants. In this sense, it's rather modern sounding. Now, the letter itself is not further divisible into smaller units that differ in sound, um, though a letter is divisible into smaller quantitative sounds of the same kind. So a given letter has the same sound for the entire length of the time it's pronounced. We may say the letter over longer or shorter times, and so it's divisible according to the length of time it's pronounced, uh, but any given part of the letter has the same sound as, as any other part. Um, so any temporal part of the sound long A um, has the same long A sound. Uh, so the letters then, in this example, are the elements out of words and of larger units, and that's Aquinas' example of the homogeneity of, of an element. Now, I'd like to raise, just at least to suggest, an alternative possibility. Um, the definition of an element may not require this kind of homogeneity, that it be homoomerous. Um, the part of the definition, indivisible according to form, may leave open an interesting possibility. Um, the element, an element might be indivisible according to form and yet have a kind of complexity or differentiation. The complexity would have to be such uh, that the element could not be divided into separable parts, and the parts would have to be such that they couldn't exist on their own, but only as parts of the whole. Though not physically divisible, we can make a kind of distinction between parts and parts and whole. Um, the possibility is suggested by, I think, the platonic solids. Um, the platonic solids fail as elements in all sorts of ways, but they suggest the possibility of parts into which a whole cannot be actually divided. Um, the platonic solids are composed of lines and of planes, uh, which are parts of the whole body. Um, if we accept the premise that one and two dimensional objects cannot physically exist on their own, then we see the possibility of a whole having parts but parts into which the whole cannot be physically divided. Not because we don't have the power to do so, but because it's just per se impossible. The whole is dependent on its parts, and the parts are dependent upon the whole, so that the whole can't be divided into parts without destroying both the parts and the whole. Now, of course, platonic solids are actually divisible in ways incompatible with the division of an element, the definition of an element. They're geometrical entities, and thus they're not subject to matter and motion, um, which is essential to chemistry, uh, chemistry not being reducible to mathematics, uh, and also mathematical objects are not, as such, dynamic and uh, receptive. So 
Aquinas' own example of letters, it seems, hints to me at this possibility of elements that have a kind of complexity but are not divisible according to form because spoken letters um, are not as such three-dimensional bodies. Now, an element being composed of prime matter and substantial form has certain um, qualities uh, and active and passive potencies. In discussing the cosmological region of chemical activity, we noted that the qualities of heavenly, heavy and light, by which on Aristotle and Aquinas' account, bodies tend toward, the elements tend toward their natural places. Now, in addition to these qualities, um, by which a body is ordered to place, uh, for Aristotle and Aquinas, the elements have four chemically relevant qualities, hot, cold, dry, and wet. Now, hot on this view is not related to the motion of, of particles, but is a, a, a property or a quality. And hot and cold are thought, were thought to be two distinct qualities um, uh, uh, that um, interact with each other. Um, they are not, as it were, uh, on a single continuum measured in, in degrees Kelvin. Now, each quality, hot, cold, dry, and wet, has certain powers or capacities. Hot and cold were thought to be active powers, wet and dry are passive powers. So, for example, uh, to be hot is have, to have the ability to heat, uh, to produce effects that follow upon heating, such as warming other things, rarefying other things, um, and associating or disassociating other kinds of things. Likewise, um, to have the quality cold is to have the ability to cool things, to condense them, and to make some things uh, cohere. Um, an element that has the quality uh, wet has, among other things, the ability to be congealed or to be limited. So, in general, hot and cold play the role of agent, and dry and wet play the role of patient. Now, each of the four elements uh, possesses two of these qualities, one active and one passive. Um, there are four possible combinations because something can't be both hot and cold at the same time um, in the same respect. Um, so earth is uh, cold and dry, water is cold and wet, um, fire is hot and dry, and um, water, I mean, sorry, air is hot hot and wet. Now in each of these four elements, one quality will naturally predominate as the element's proper quality um, and uh, power and, uh, um, um, where did I go here? Uh, I lost my place. Okay, so dry uh, is the proper quality of earth, cold in water, um, wet in air, and hot in, in fire. Now, in the elements, these qualities were thought to be the um, uh, full perfection that their form can have. So, for example, hot in fire is the highest, most perfect grade of hot that the form hot can attain. Um, in addition, the instances that we see of fire, air, and water, and earth that we observe in the world around us are not uh, pure instances of these elements. The water that we see contains impurities. The fire that we see has a certain excess and intensity of heat by which it, it, it flames. Okay. 
Now, as is clear from the discussion, Aristotle's definition of elements, the elements were not the most fundamental physical realities. Uh, they were changeable and could be transformed into each other and were material causes of other natural substances. Now, by contrast, Aristotle's predecessor, the pre-Socratic philosopher Empedocles, held that the four elements were unchangeable, and he explained changes in natural things as the association and disassociation of the elements. Um, Aristotle thought water could become air, a change that Empedocles held was impossible, but which Aristotle thought was just simply an observational fact. So Empedocles resolved change into unchangeable bodily things that had no further composition, whereas Aristotle explained motion or change in terms of the non-bodily principles of matter, form, and privation. So Aristotle could explain the transformation and change of the elements since they were composed of prime matter and substantial form. The elements are produced from one another since each element exists potentially in another and so can be generated one from another. Um, they have the same common uh, first matter underlying each of them. So Aristotle's idea here is that things that have the same matter, in the case of the elements, it's prime matter, um, such, but his example is, is metal things, are so related that anyone is potentially in any other um, uh, thing of the same kind of, uh, of matter. So, for example, different kinds of metal things would be so related and sort of more easily made into each other, whereas something metal is not easily made into uh, something um, wood. Um, so, in the transformation of one element into another, uh, one element is destroyed, um, though it's not annihilated, uh, while the other element comes to be, though it's not uh, created. And on this account, what persists through the elemental change, such as change from water and air, so that it's not annihilation or creation, is uh, prime matter, something which itself does not have a form. Um, the principle by which a new element comes to be then is substantial form, and similarly the old element passes away through the loss of its substantial form. And in this way, the principle that from nothing, nothing comes to be is uh, preserved. So how are the elements transformed into each other? Um, this requires briefly discussing generation, corruption, and alteration, just briefly. Uh, generation is a substantial change. It's the coming to be, of, in this case, of a new individual being that exists in and of itself. Corruption is also a substantial change. It's the passing away of an individual being that exists in and of itself. In such changes, the underlying matter loses a substantial form that makes the substance be what it is and acquires a new substantial form by which a new substance exists. Now, alteration... Uh, alteration is a qualitative change, uh, an accidental change that presupposes a substance or subject in act that remains numerically the same throughout the change. For a quality presupposes a substance of which it is the quality. So changes from hot to cold or wet to dry are alterations, and alteration is the way to generation and corruption. Um, how? Every substantial form requires a proper disposition or range of dispositions in its matter, a disposition without which it cannot exist. 
So put another way, a natural thing can only exist if its matter is disposed in a certain way or within a certain range. So fire has a certain range of heat and of dryness within which it can exist. Um, Fire cannot come to be or remain in being in matter that uh, is outside of that range, that has a contrary disposition such as cold and wet. You can't have cold and wet fire. So consequently, alteration through contrary qualities is the way to generation corruption inasmuch as alteration changes the disposition of the substance's matter. So thus, when enough water, uh, which is cold and wet, acts upon fire, which is hot and dry, um, the fire is altered by the water's qualities so that the fire's matter becomes cold and wet. And eventually, the fire is qualitatively altered to the point at which it's too cold and too wet to continue existing as fire. Its matter no longer has the proper disposition. And simultaneously, the corruption of fire is also the generation of water from the potency of matter that now has the qualitative dispositions appropriate uh, to water. Now, according to Aristotle, the elements, through the reciprocal action of their characteristic contrary powers and qualities, were not only able to transform each other, but were able to combine in definite ratios and form new kinds of natural bodies. For example, a certain proportion of earth and water could combine to form a metal. Now, typically all four elements were involved in these changes. Um, But this raises the famous question of how the elements are present um, in physical things that are made out of them. From the definition of an element, an element is in some way in the thing of which it is an element, but in what way are earth and water in the metal if the metal is a new kind of natural being? Um, The philosopher of chemistry, Richard Serre, uh, contemporary, uh, puts this question in a modern context. Mendeleev thus acknowledged one of the central mysteries running throughout the long history of chemistry which is the question of how, if at all, the elements survive in the compounds they form when they are combined together. For example, how can it be claimed that a poisonous gray metal like sodium is still present when it combines with a green poisonous gas chlorine, given that the compound formed, compound form, sodium chloride, or common table salt, is white and not only non-poisonous, but essential to life. Now, Aquinas addresses this question in a very brief work titled On the Mixture of Elements, in which he asks, how are the elements present in a mixed body? The notion of a mixture or mixed body immediately presents a kind of translation problem. Uh, Aquinas' Latin is mixtum and mixtio, which are readily translated as mixed or mixture. Um, However, mixed does not mean for him uh, what it does for us as when we refer to something that is a mixture as opposed to, say, a compound. For Aquinas, a mixed body is a natural body composed of more than one element, but which also implies a unity in composition that results in a whole new thing, meaning a body having one nature, not several. 
A mixed body would be opposed to the notion of an aggregate, uh, a loose collection of things grouped together, like salt and pepper poured into the same container. And so it would be really somewhat opposed to our notion of, say, a heterogeneous chemical mixture. Uh, for this reason, mixtum is sometimes translated as compound, uh, but compound arguably imports too much modern chemistry and too quickly eliminates solutions from consideration. Um, since no English word really has the equivalent meaning of Aquinas's Latin, I'm going to use mix or mixture for Aquinas's mixtio uh, with the proviso that uh, what we ordinarily mean by a mixture is not what Aquinas um, means here. Uh, we will better understand what Aquinas means uh, by a mixture through considering the different theories or explanations of a mixture that he rejects and uh, the one he accepts. Now, in On the Mixture of Elements, Aquinas considers two commonly held theories with which he disagrees, and then he sets forward uh, the theory that he accepts, which is often called virtual presence. Um, I'll begin with the first theory and the two arguments commonly given in support of it. Now, according to this theory, theory one, which is usually identified with the Islamic philosopher Avicenna, the elements are actually present in a mixture through the continued possession of their substantial forms, but the elements' active and passive qualities are altered into some sort of mean. The alteration uh, of the active and passive qualities accounts for the mixed body's new and different qualities and activities as well as the absence of the ordinary qualitative activity of the elements. It explains why a mixed body is not as hot as fire or as cold as earth, but is as cold, dry, and condensed as, say, a metal. Now, the proponents of this view maintain that the substantial forms of the elements remained in a mixture in order to avoid a pair of seemingly unacceptable consequences. If the substantial forms did not remain, then the elements would be completely corrupted. Thus, no elements would exist to be mixed, and consequently, there would be no mixture. Alternatively, if we assume that a mixed body exists and has its own substantial form that actuates its matter, but deny that the substantial forms of the elements are actually present, then the elements will no longer be present in the mixed body. So in sum, according to theory one, denying the presence of the substantial forms of the elements in a mixed body means either that in reality there's no mixed body at all or there are no elements in the mixed body. Now Aquinas rejects this theory, theory one, because he thinks it's impossible for the substantial forms of the elements to be actually present in a mixed body. He argues first on the part of form. The numerically same piece of extended matter okay, uh, can't be at the one and the same time have the substantial forms of different elements because the substantial form makes a thing be what it is. Thus, if the same extended hunk of matter had the substantial forms of fire and water, uh, for example, it would be both fire and water at the same time in the same respect, which is impossible. Consequently, the substantial forms of the elements uh, are 
if the substantial forms of the elements are present, they'll have to be present in different magnitudes or different extended parts of the matter. One extended hunk of matter will have to have the substantial form of one element, one would have to have the substantial form of the other element, and so forth. The result, then, will not be one body, but um, several bodies. One body per each extended hunk of matter having uh, its own substantial elemental form. So the result, then, would not be a true mixture, uh, but a kind of juxtaposition, what Aquinas called a mixture uh, according to sense. And what he means by this is that uh, individual, in, 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 uh, they, they would look like they were one body, but they would not really be one body. What you would have is something like salt and pepper in a container. Theory one also fails on the part of matter. For something to receive a substantial form, the matter has to be properly disposed, which is why some alteration in the material is usually required to properly dispose the matter for the generation of a new substance. Um, different elements require different suitable dispositions of their matter so that matter that is suitably disposed to one element is not going to be suitably disposed to another element. So again, if the elements are actually present with their substantial forms, then you're going to have to have two opposing dispositions of matter, which means really two bodies and not one uh, mixed body. Um, I want to call attention here to a peculiar feature of ancient and medieval chemistry, at least as Aquinas and Aristotle understood it. On their view, the elements, mixtures, and inanimate bodies generally were homogeneous, what were technically called uh, homeomeres, so that each and every part uh, of a mixture has got to be the same as every other part, so that a mixture doesn't have a kind of complex structure analogous to the way in which modern chemistry depicts a, a compound. So, um, as Aristotle and Aquinas understood a mixture, the ha elements have to be in the mixture in such a way that they are throughout the compound. Um, there's nothing analogous to atomic nuclei of the elements um, out of which the compound is formed that are typically modeled as it's some sort of spatial uh, difference to each other. Now, this doesn't mean that the arguments that Aquinas is making don't have some kind of contemporary application, because Aquinas is going to apply the notion of virtual presence to um, living things um, as well, which are uh, differentiated and heterogeneous. But it does mean that any sort of application, especially at the level of chemistry, is going to require some more development. Now, the second theory was advanced by people who wanted to avoid the problems resulting from the first, and according to this theory, uh, usually identified with Averroes, the substantial forms of the elements remain in a mixed body so that they are um, not corrupted, um, but um, um, the substantial forms um, were viewed because they were the most imperfect forms and they're so close to prime matter, they were thought to be a kind of in-between form, in between, a kind of, uh, in between substantial form and accidental form. So they had this kind of halfway status. And then because they're in between substantial form and accidental form, they approach the nature of an accidental form 
um, and so can be like the accidental forms of a substance or a mixed body. Um, but because they were something like substantial forms, they could account for the presence of the elements in the body. Okay. Now, Aquinas rejects this sort of, of view for several reasons. First, a body, you really can't have something halfway between a substance and an accident. And the reason why is that an accident exists in and of another, whereas a substance does not exist in and of another, but exists in itself. So to exist in itself and to exist not in itself but in another are really contradictories. So to posit a kind of intermediate between substance and accident, between what does exist in a subject and what does not, would seem to violate the law of the excluded middle. Um, in addition, there can't really be a mean between substance and accident because substance and accident are not in the same class or genera of things. For example, there's no mean between a height of 72 inches and a weight of 180 uh, pounds. To talk about a mean between two things, they really have to be in the same uh, genus. Now, um, I want to skip a few things here and talk about Aquinas' own solution. Um, he thinks that the substantial forms of the elements are not actually present in a mixed body. But um, then how are the elements present? They cannot be actually present if their substantial forms aren't present, so they've got to be potentially present because there's no intermediate between potentiality and actuality. Um, but um, um, we might wonder then um, how, how potentially present really meets the full sense in, uh, the sense in which he wants to argue that the elements are present. Well, potentially present can mean different things. And according to Aquinas, the elements and the substantial forms are potentially present in a mixed body by the presence of their powers, which are preserved in a mixed body, uh, it's usually called virtual presence, although it's not a term that Aquinas uses. So what he means by presence by power requires a little exploration here. By power, Aquinas means a principle of change in another thing, uh, in another thing or in itself as other. So we speak of the power of sight, uh, of a doctor's power to heal. Now, as mentioned previously, the elements have powers in virtue of their active and passive qualities. Fire is the power to heat in virtue of having the quality hot. Now, unlike substantial forms, the active and passive qualities of the elements, and so their powers, are contrary to each other and are also able to come in degrees of more or less, more or less dry, more or less cold, and so forth. Now, because they're contraries, they can't be fully and actually present as themselves in a mixed body. A mixed body can't, in the same respect and in the same time, be fully hot with the heat of fire and fully cold with the cold of earth. But since the qualities can be changed by degrees of more or less, they can mutually interact and not, um, and not only change each other, but also become united and form a new quality that is a kind of mean or intermediate between the two. Uh, the mean quality uh, is in a, a harmony that shares in the nature of the two extremes out of which it formed, but is neither of the extremes. So blends of color are an example 
Uh, Aquinas writes of gray or pale as a mean between black and white. Um, gray is neither black nor white, but a blend of, of, of the two um, in such a way that we are nearly aware of the black and the white in the gray, especially as the shade of gray is much closer to one extreme than another. Um, so um, another example would be metals, uh, metals that could be melted or fused. This was taken as indicating the quality of wetness, implying that the element water was involved in their composition. The elements themselves no longer actually exist. Earth, air, fire, and water can't be diminished or put into a mean, but their powers do in this kind of harmonized way. So the mean quality is a quality that's no longer suitable or proper to an element, but it is suitable or proper to a mixed body. Um, so in other words, just as an element has a quality that's proper disposition or form of the element, so the mean quality of a mixed body is a proper quality suitable to, the disposi suitable to its uh, disposition. Now, in any case, in the process of mixing, as the qualities of the elements are altered into a mean, the substantial form of the elements is lost and replaced by the new substantial form of the mixed body, which gives the mixed body its new activities, potentialities, its new unity, its new actuality, and its new nature. So the powers of the elements out of which the mixed body formed are present in it as harmonized into a mean. They survive as altered in a new quality. So when the mixed body is then corrupted, there's no formal principle by which these powers, the elemental powers, are united in a mean, and so the mixed body corrupts or degenerates back into the powers appropriate to the elements, and then so into the elements out of which it was made. Uh, the harmonized quality of the mixed body corrupts into the qualities of the elements because the harmonized quality was precisely a ratio of the qualities of the elements. Um, to further understand how the substantial forms of the elements are present in a mixed body through the powers, uh, we have to start to understand a little bit about the relationship of substantial form and powers. So Aquinas distinguishes between a quality of an element, like hot, and the substantial form of the element, that by which it is fire or, qual or, or water. Now, the quality depends upon and it operates in the power of the substantial form. So heat for Aquinas can generate heat, but it can't really generate fire unless it were operating under the power or the direction of the appropriate substantial form. Uh, we similarly express our personalities and our thoughts and our choices through gestures, mannerisms, actions, expressions, and so forth. Now, in the case of a mixed body, the powers of the mixed body depend upon the substantial form, its substantial form. However, not only are the powers of the mixed body a mean or a harmonization between the powers of the elements, but also a mixed body is a more complete, it's more higher than the elements out of which it was made. Aquinas makes this sort of, his claim, uh, in the context of considering whether there are many souls in a human person uh, besides the one intellectual soul. So I'll read the quote. We observe that the species and forms of things differ from one another as the perfect and the imperfect, as in the order of things. The animate are more perfect than the inanimate, and the animals more perfect than plants, and man more than brute animals, 
and in each of these genera there are various degrees. So the idea here is that the human intellectual soul contains not only intellectual powers but also powers of sensation and nutrition that in a generic way are proper to ants, animals and plants respectively. So the higher in a generic way contains the lower and so it's unnecessary for a human being to have the two kinds of soul possessed by lower kinds of living things. Um, so the idea here is that so too in a mixed body, it contains what the elements possess, uh, but by incorporating their powers in its own way and according to its own natures. The elements are thereby subsumed and unified by the new substantial form of the mixed body, according to which the elements, powers, and qualities are then informed and act. So the substantial forms of the elements do not exist, but their powers are blended and taken up into a new and higher substantial form that, as it were, has what the elements have in an altered and in a, a, a generic but superior way. So thus there is a substantial form by which the elements, through their powers, are present um, in a mixed body. How much time do I have? One minute? Yeah, okay. So... An important point about the application of virtual presence or presence by power to different levels of soul is to appreciate that presence by power need not be limited to homogeneous bodies. Plants, animals, and human beings are not homogeneous, um, yet presence by power is applicable to them. So consequently, although the mixed bodies of Aristotle's chemistry is accepted by Aquinas or homeomeris, uh, this is a feature peculiar to their chemistry and not to virtual presence itself. Now, and Aquinas uses an interesting geometrical example that helps make this point as well as illustrate the way in which higher souls are virtually contained in the lower. So a pentagon, he says, uh, in a way contains a tetragon, a four-sided figure, so that the pentagon is not tetragonal by one shape and a pentagon by another. So applied to medieval chemistry, maintaining that fire itself is actually present in a mixture would be like saying that a tetragon is actually present in a pentagon. Uh, but more significantly, the example and the discussion of souls to which it's applied indicate that not only the powers and the qualities may be present virtually or by power, but also there may be a sense in which structures upon which these powers depend may also uh, be present in such a way in uh, uh, mixed bodies. Now, they of course were not in the uh, chemistry of Aquinas' time. Uh, I'm out of time. I wish I could say more about St. Albert the Great and about occult qualities, but it's a big subject. So, thank you very much. Dr. McGuffin for taking on the unenviable task of trying to summarize a, a, a massive corpus of, of, um, uh, sort of chemical thought uh, in, in 45 minutes. Uh, we have a few minutes for questions, uh, and again, we'll have more um, uh, uh, conversation later on, but just a couple couple of initial questions. So. In the back. Oh. Actually, I was wondering if you talk just a, a little bit about the cold qualities <laughs> in Albert? Just, just a little bit. Um, <laughs> I'm a little bit more how, familiar with how Aquinas handles them than how Albert does. But at the beginning, when I put up the, the sort of cosmology, the, the view of the cosmos, okay, and the cosmology, 
That is a very hierarchical cosmos. So the center with the Earth has to be thought of as the bottom, and then you're going up outward from the center, you're going up to higher and higher sorts of things, and the celestial regions especially are, are higher and are, exert a certain order and control over the very messy sublunar region. Now, um, the way Aquinas uses an occult quality it would be a quality that a body has that really exceeds its own nature. Okay? The body seems to be doing things that go beyond uh, the powers that are natural to this. And uh, this could be a, a result, if it's an occult quality, that would mean for Aquinas that it is invested, as it were, with, some with something, some quality from the celestial bodies that is received from something uh, higher than it. Uh, the example I have in mind is not one from chemistry, but it, it, it I think, helps make the point that uh, Aquinas believed in, uh, in spontaneous generation of what very primitive animals like uh, maggots and, and things like that. And so these are generated from inanimate matter. Okay, and not by some sort of natural cause in the sublunar realm. The cause, uh, on his account, was the sun, and it's, it, it's giving this inanimate matter, giving cause to um, uh, living things. And so that's sort of an example. Uh, it's not actually an occult quality as, as such. But um, in Albert, there's quite a few in, in the mineralogy, and I'm just not as familiar with that as I'd like to be. So, is that at all? Yeah, it opens up. This is where I, I think, especially the, the 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 interconnection between this sort of natural philosophy and alchemy, um, especially, becomes right for occult qualities. So this might be nice. These are my first two lessons in philosophy today. So thank you. Can you clarify the difference between? Quality and accidental form. Yeah, like uh, a quality is going to be one kind of accidental form. Okay. So um, if I were to get a tan, that would be a, a kind of qualitative uh, change. It would be a change in accidental um, uh, form. Um, whereas if we think in terms of uh, my height, that might be. Um, and I grew a little taller, we might be thinking of that more as a quantitative change in, in height, which would be kind of like. But, but that also would be a change, a change in accidental form, but the accidental quantity rather right. than quality. Right. So typically, accidental changes are things like quantity, uh, quality, um, motion, I mean, place, things like that. Okay? So a qualitative change is just one kind of accidental. You, you, uh, your talk uh, dealt with these ideas in a historical fashion. Right. But you would, would you agree that uh, not differentiating between physical mixtures and chemical reactions is really a big, a serious problem? Yeah, I dropped I drop that part out of the talk in order to have time. But uh, uh, that, yeah, so it doesn't seem to me, it seems to me that we want to distinguish between chemistry and physics in a way that's a little bit stronger and sharper 
than Aquinas and Aristotle would have. So for them, the elements possess heavy and light as intrinsic properties by which they fall or rise to their natural places in the universe. So there is a kind of distinction between that and the more chemically proper qualities, but they're bound together pretty closely and the elements have their own proper place. So yeah, I wanted to point out that, that when you react things together, the properties are not an average of, of the two properties. That can be extremely different. Hydrogen and oxygen make water, the big the the, the uh, points don't match at all. Uh, you can have water and fire simultaneously, it's not a problem. You burn hydrogen up, you get water and fire at the same time. So these ideas when you apply the chemistry really don't um, I'm wondering how much to push on that because in some sense um, you want to be able to explain the properties of water due to the valences and other chemical properties of the hydrogen and oxygen. It doesn't, um, so even if you don't have a, a mean in Aquinas' sense, you would surely have the properties of both the hydrogen and oxygen contributing to the outcome. Um, Yeah, I, I can see the point. Yeah. Um, I actually think Aquinas would be happier with that. I, I think that would make his philosophical point actually a little bit more, uh, a little stronger. Um, I think that empirically what Aristotle was thinking of, was like where I gave an example of fusibility, I mean of uh, fusibility of metals that they could melt, is that I think he thought that you've got to have something like elements because when we observe the things of the world, we seem to see elemental-like properties, something of them, in the holes out of, of, of which they are, are made. So um, I think that's part of the reason that he, he wanted to hold to the, the, the reality of, of the elements. But, um, I can see the point that when you're in chemistry, we're not looking at simple means or harmonizations. Okay, I completely grant that. So there's got to be a little bit different understanding of how the elements are going into the whole and what you're getting out of that. But I think actually Aquinas might be happier with the modern chemistry because the form of the mixed body as a superior form is going to give you is going to actuate some principle, some potency out of the combined materials that wasn't simply there as a simple sum of the two. So I think that actually plays better to him than the old chemistry does. So keep that question in mind going forward, because it's uh, both this afternoon and the next few days, I think, sort of looking at how these ideas start to be uh, uh, looked at in sort of the early modern period, and then sort of as, as we try to look at what actually, how we actually understand modern chemistry, how applicable. So I think this is a, it's a good question to sort of keep in mind as we go forward. Any other figure question on the topic? Just a question to clarify that what, what about the concept of uh, element in scholastic philosophy? Um, I know a lot of the discussion today was framed around the idea of elements as um, form matter composites. However, like for instance, um, Aristoxenus, uh, when he writes uh, like the elements of harmony, 
it seems that the scholastic notion of element can encompass uh, things that don't necessarily have a material component. So like uh, one of the elements of harmony would be like a pitch modulation, which I think we would say um, doesn't have a material component, purely formal. Uh, could you speak a bit to that notion? Just uh, basically, uh, yes. The, the notion of an element was used, um, I'm speaking of it, used very narrowly as it's applied in um, what we might want to call their, their chemistry or their composition wise. But it can be used for all sorts of things. So, example, for, so for example, the example I gave of, an, of a letter in um, a, a word or in a syllable, and then you build up uh, to a whole speech. Um, so it, it, it has a very broad use, and so you can speak of the elements of harmony, the elements of speech. Um, uh, there's a famous modern book called The Elements of Style, on, on writing and speaking with style, and that's that's exactly how they would have used the term. So it, it, it is open to a much broader use, but I, I was just trying to focus it pretty narrowly. And actually, that's part of how they derive the meaning of the, uh, of the term of what an element would be by looking at its use in a variety of different fields. Um, yeah, I was uh, wondering about an issue, which I think was touched upon in one reading, uh, that if elements are present in a mixture or compound just virtually, like by your different powers, then there's, isn't there a problem of like unique decomposition? It's like if you find a different set of elements which can, uh, like, which when they work together give you the same powers, and you can also say that instead of these elements, it's actually these other elements which uh, are present in the mixture or compound. So it seems like there's no like. Not necessarily like there could be cases where there's like unique uh, decomposition of what are the virtual presences in a thing. There could be elements with different situations when there's like different unique decompositions, and you can't say for sure which one is the real one, right? Um, do you get kind of my point there? Okay, let me make sure I understand it correctly. It, it seems to me what you're saying is that you could get the same result, right? Okay, the same ratio, the same quality which is the same um, quality in the mixed body, which is the harmonization of different others, by blending two, there might be yeah. different blends that would give you the same result. Okay, and so uh, to use a modern kind of, of example, water need not be H2O, if you're thinking in this old, uh, something like that. Uh, um, when I was thinking about this, I was mostly thinking just sort of uh, with examples. And I was trying to think, okay, can I think of an instance where we blend, uh, I'm blending colors, okay? And this blend gives me this. Can I take two other colors and get the exact same color as a blend? I and mean, that was how I was trying to approach it. Um, and I, or if I'm taking, what could I take besides hot and cold to give me a kind of meaning between the two? I mean, in colors, you certainly can't, but that's why a computer, you can choose different bases, like RGB or yeah. CFK. Like, and it gives you the exact same yeah. result? Right. Uh, I mean, like, it's just a, yeah, like, it's, it's just like, yeah, different bases that span the same color yeah. space. Um, this makes me more sympathetic to his question. <laughs> that it may be that his his what he was saying is that you know you can't view the result, the resulting quality, or the resulting power as simply a harmonization. Okay. 
right? That's in, in modern chemistry, that's not what it is. And I wonder if that opens you up to a more unique determination of the result. But the short answer is, is I think it's a great question. I'm not sure uh, quite what I would want to say to that. Just beyond the sort of speculations I've been making here. But but I you're making a, another good point that no, actually you can produce the same blend with different colors. Well, I think well, just about there is that what you're talking about is different bases. So I don't remember. I mean, if you're using the CMY here, whatever it is, there's sort of a unique for, for a particular color in that basis. There's a unique unique way to specify it. Right. So then the question is, could there be a different set of things besides earth, air, fire, and water that are actually the elements we're just stating? Is that well, I mean, part of what I'm also wondering is if in those base specifications you would actually presuppose something, they're not really basic. In other words, you're, you're characterizing the base color, <coughs> let me give a good example, and it's a, kind of, it's a kind of orange. But that kind of orange has really already got a little bit of red and yellow in it, so when you make the mix, you're already, the reason you can do it in different ways is because you're already working with mixes and not with elements. But I'm just guessing. We have two more questions, and we'll uh, call Thanks. Um, so on the, the topic of trying to reconcile. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Just um, on the, on the uh, question of how to reconcile this account of chemistry with what we have to think about contemporary chemistry, one of the things that um, struck me is that this account um, seems to be defining um, elements in terms of qualities. Um, we, we observe distinct qualities, and you know, therefore there's distinct elements that provide distinct qualities in sense. Um, but it seems like uh, contemporary chemistry is it's more you're distinguishing quantitatively um, um, how we how we like figure out you know what are the lower elements. Um, and I'm wondering you know if that if there's a way of bringing those together on an Aristotelian chemistic framework substances have both um, quantity, uh, quantities and qualities. Um, uh, I don't know, or like, yeah. think about elements, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there are some points of contact and some real differences. So yeah. the points of contact um, that I, I'm thinking about here, um, sort of lost my train of thought on one part of your question. Um, but the notion of, of powers, it seems like, would be a common feature. So it has, even though it's very crude, okay, you've got a, a notion of, of hot that gives you uh, the power of heating. Okay? And so I don't know that you have anything uh, quite so uh, quantitative in notions like your bonding capacity uh, of an element or valence or something like that. But it seems to me you're introducing a notion of power when you're talking about uh, valence or affinities or something of that sort. So I think that might be a common feature. The qualitative part, I think, raises uh, a very interesting issue because for Aristotle, the chemical qualities had to be sensory and they had to be tangible. They had to be tangible, which means by touch, because that was the broadest range of qualities, okay? and they affect, he thought, all bodies. But the requirement that they be um, uh, sensory seems like it raised some very interesting issues. Now, partly, 
was because he wanted them sensible, because he wanted them tied in to um, the real world and grounded in what we can observe. Okay? He did not particularly care for the highly speculative thinking of Plato, um, nor, and he was troubled by the positing of Adams like as by Democritus, where I think he thought that the movement from the observed to the unobserved particle was highly speculative. Okay? So I think we can respect the desire to tie that in with the empirical. He may have wanted uh, grounded in the empirical for more reasons than that. Uh, there's a desire in Aristotle that or, 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 Aristotle is very concerned about language tracking reality, and that's a concern for me in terms of working this out. Uh, in terms of a quantitative approach, once you start talking about ratios of elements, I mean, ratio uh, about the mean quality as a ratio or proportion of the qualities of the elements, I think you're opening yourself up to a mathematical approach. As far as I know, that wasn't developed by the scholastics, but it seems like it's readily there. It's just there waiting. Um, because you get three parts this, two parts that. Um, or five parts this, ten parts this. So it's very easy to be quantitative, I think, to approach a quantitative. So I, I hope that yeah. goes a little bit. Yeah, yeah. All right, I know I said two, but actually we're going to put up there so we can get to, to one. So first, let's thank uh, Dr. McLaughlin.